Exodus chapter 5. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. Um, let me just recap where we're up to. We've been uh, working our way through and each week we've just reminded ourselves that this incredible book that we're working through, it is real historical narrative. Like this actually happened. We read it in the Bible. We believe that it's true. You can read it in history books as well. It is real historical narrative, but also we've been saying each week that what we read in the book of Exodus is the pattern for our lives as God's people. I saw in chapter one that God has created us to enjoy rest in his presence. He is a good, holy God, and he's created humanity to be in his presence. But then we saw in chapter two how sin enslaves us. Because God is holy and he is good, we are kept out of the thing that we are created for, God's good and restful presence. We are kept out of it because of our sin. And sin isn't just a word or something that we do, it's who we are. It's our nature. As we come into this world, we come into this world as sinners. And the weight of sin, the darkness of sin, our nature of sin steals our joy, weighs us down, it covers us in shame and guilt. And as we come into this world, as we are taking this nature of sin across our lives, is declared guilty. We are guilty before a holy God. And we are rightly deserving of his judgment. Then we saw a sweet transition to chapter 3. God sees his people in their affliction. He sees his people, the Israelites, in their physical slavery in Egypt. And he sees his people, God's people, In this spiritual slavery, as we are enslaved to our sin, he sees us, he knows, and he remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise to draw us out of our slavery and to bring us into his restful presence, the very thing that we were created for. And remember we said, when God remembers, it isn't just like he remembers and moves on. God's remembrance is an action. He remembers his promise and he acts. And that's what we saw, the momentum building. Last week in, uh, in chapter four, as God uh, draws out Moses as his man who's going to lead the liberation of God's people. And we saw that Moses, he's God's uh, shepherd, God's leader, but he is by no means perfect. In fact, he's literally an ex-convict. Like we saw this episode, this strange episode in Egypt. He's brought up in Egypt. He murders an Egyptian slave master, tries to bury him in the sand, runs away from Egypt, scared. Spends 40 years in the wilderness. But even last week, as we saw that God called him, gave him a purpose to go back to Egypt, to tell his people that he was, God's going to bring about a liberation. We saw even last week that, that Moses is proud. He's weak in his faith. But by the end of chapter four, we saw God had dealt with him. That interesting episode, remember it, where we all winced a little bit. Circumcision of Moses' son, that strange little bit in the narrative, but how it showed us that, that in order for Moses to be right before God, there needed to be a shedding of blood. And so he's made right, God corrects him and sends him back to Egypt. Firstly, to tell Israel that God is going to draw them out of slavery, bring them into his rest, and then to tell Pharaoh that this is, this is what's going to happen. And so we ended last week in chapter 4 and verse 30. I want to read it again for us just to set the context. Moses goes with Aaron to tell the Israelites he's back in Egypt. He's telling them this great news that God is going to liberate them. God's going to free them. They've been in slavery, physical slavery for 400 years. And he tells them this good news. And then in verse 31 of chapter 4, we read this. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. 
like this is a, a high point for Moses. Like this is the this is every pastor's dream. Like you open the word of God, you share, and everyone, everyone, like revival breaks out. Like that seems what is ha- happening here with Moses. He comes and brings this message from God. They believe, they hear God's heart for them, and they bow their heads and they worship. Like Moses would have been on a spiritual high here. Like, like this is a, a real pinnacle in his ministry so far after being chastised from God. Things are going so well. It's a high point for him. And we, we know what those times feel like. We know what it is to be caught up into something, to be a, a kind of on a mountaintop experience where everything, everything seems to be going well around us. Like obedience for us just flows like a spring and prayer is like breathing. And when we open God's word, it just comes alive to us. Moses is having one of those days here. A worship service breaks out. People are responding to God's word. But within a few days, as we go into chapter 5, we see that Moses is brought back down with a bump. And what he experiences as we walk through chapter 5, 6, and 7 is not only a picture of the Christian life, highs and lows, mountaintops and valleys, peaks and troughs. It's not just showing us that that is the norm for the Christian life, but what we see in particular in chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that when we find ourselves in the low points of life, when we find ourselves in the valleys, when we find ourselves in the troughs, there is great help for us there. When we find ourselves in positions where it just feels like even though he's not, God is so distant. When we find the call to obedience really hard and, and, and it just feels like it's going against the flow of everything that we know to be right and good. When we find our, ourselves in those situations, what we're going to find in chapter 6 is there is great help for us. There is gospel truth that helps us to stay the course and to keep walking in obedience, even in the midst of discouragement. So let me read. I'm just going to read. We're not going to read the whole of 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to pull out a few portions and just walk us through the narrative. We're just going to start with a few verses from chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, and then I'll pray. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, The people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it. And pay no regard to lying words. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we open it and work through it this afternoon, we pray that you would impress it on our hearts. Help us to believe it as truth. Father, we don't just want to hear this afternoon, we want to change. We thank you that your word is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Shine the light of the glory of the gospel into the darkness of our hearts and our lives. Show us the better way to live. Change as we pray to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask. 
Amen. The mountaintop experience of chapter 4, verse 31 has suddenly become a little bit different. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Moses has gone and done exactly what God has told him to do. God says in chapter 4, go to Pharaoh, tell them that you're to let my people go. And that's what he does. He goes in chapter 1, he tells Pharaoh, God has said, you've got to let his people go. Let the Israelites go. Pharaoh's response is, not a chance. Who who is this God? Like, I don't know who he is. Why Why are you telling me what to do? Not a chance. Now, they kind of expect this. Moses and Aaron would have expected this. God gives a a couple of hints in chapter 4 that that they will go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. But God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And and if that's kind of like, "Hmm, that's interesting. Hold on to that. We're going to come there in a few weeks. Just let's not go there for now. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart and he's going to resist. And so they kind of expect a bit of resistance from Pharaoh, at least initially. Pharaoh says, not a chance. And so they go on again in verse three and says, okay, listen, God, the the God of the Hebrews has told us to tell you to let his people go. They're going to go into the wilderness and worship him. They're even polite. They say, please, please let them go. And then they start to lay on a bit of pressure. If you don't, you need to watch out because judgment is coming. Sword is coming. Pestilence is coming. So they expect resistance initially, but then they kind of lay it on a bit heavy and they say, no, it's time, Pharaoh. No messing around. You've got to let God's people go. It's a bit of a drop the mic moment here for Aaron and Moses. Okay, we get that you're not going to listen the first time, but you need to listen up. God means business. Let his people go. But he doesn't. In fact, in verse 4, Pharaoh turned round to Moses and Aaron and he taunts them. Get back to your burdens. I want to stop here for a second and just ground something that's so important for us to see as we seek to live the Christian life and to walk in obedience to God. In that little phrase there, we need to see something that's so helpful for us to see, and it's this. Obedience to God is never unopposed. Obedience to God is never unopposed. Everyday folks, God's people are tempted towards sin. We're tempted to indulge in the lusts of the flesh. We're, we're provoked towards pride and laziness and apathy and anger, whatever sin it is for you. These things rise up every day and they bid us come, they beckon us to come, to come away from God, to walk away from obedience and to come and join sin and indulge in those things. And when we fall into temptation, when we sin, we all know that it's not just as simple as saying, okay, see you later, I'm going back to God. The world, the flesh, the devil, they taunt us. Just like Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, they'll say to us, get back to your burden. You're not strong enough to walk away from that sin. You'll never change. You don't even belong to God. Stay here. And if you're not a Christian, the same voice comes to you, but maybe it's covered in in ice and maybe it says, no, this is paradise here. Come back to paradise. Come back to where you belong. And notice what Pharaoh says in verse nine. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh says, don't listen to God. He's lying. There's no freedom in God. If you want freedom from slavery, don't go to God. That's just a lie. He's lying to you. Don't listen to him. He's going to rob your joy. He's going to hem you and he's going to take freedom away from you. Folks, we need to see that obedience to God is never on a post. We are taunted into disobedience. And it doesn't stop there for Moses. I feel so sorry for Moses in some respects. He's just doing what God has told him to do. 
God says, go and give this message to Pharaoh. And he does it. He's walking in obedience. And not only does he get taunted, not only does he get told that his God is a liar, but Pharaoh makes life harder. Like life was hard for the Israelites. They were in charge of making bricks for uh, the empire's construction company. And Pharaoh says, really, you want to come and ask for freedom? Well, why don't you go back and why don't you try and make bricks without straw? Let's see how you like that. And so he sends his taskmasters to go back to the Israelites and say, you're going to keep making the same amount of bricks, but this time you're going to have to find your own resources. His command goes out and the Israelites are struggling to keep up with their quota. They're working really hard and they just can't make all the bricks that they need to make as well as gathering all of the resources. And so the the Egyptian taskmasters come and they start beating the Israelites. Now remember back to chapter two, remember Moses Remember he sees an Egyptian beaten up an Israelite, remember that? Well, see how significantly worse it's got now. That was one Hebrew. That was one Israelite getting beaten. And now they're all getting beaten. So rightly enough, maybe, in verse 21, the Israelites come to Moses, come to Aaron after this mountaintop worship revival meeting. They come and they complain. In verse 21, they say this. To Moses, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Some translations say, you have made us a stinking mess. Folks, sometimes walking in obedience to God can lead us into places that look like a stinking mess. In the troughs of life, in the valleys, in the low points, sometimes obedience to God can feel like walking through treacle. Sometimes, even though he isn't, it can feel like God is distant. And that is where Moses finds himself. He's tried to walk in obedience. He's tried to do what God told him to do. But everything feels like it's fallen apart around him. He's gone from the peak. He's gone from this high point, this mountaintop experience to the trough, to the valley. And folks, all of us who are Christians are on the same roller coaster of the Christian faith. That's what it is. We experience this. Like, let's not fall into the illusion of thinking when we become a Christian, it's just this ever-increasing road of joy until we get to glory. It isn't. It's hard. It's rough. Some days it does feel like the revival meeting. And some people it feels like God couldn't be further away from us. There are peaks and there are troughs. What do we do when we find ourselves in those valleys? What do we do on those days when we feel like just everything around us has fallen apart and life is just a stinking mess? What do we do when we feel like sin is taunting us to come back, to come back to where we once lived? What do we do on those days when everything around us is saying, God's a liar, there's no freedom and obedience? What do we do on those days when it feels like God is absent? But the first thing we do is pray. Flick that one on for us, Karis. We pray. In the valley, in the trough, when we're in those low places, we pray and we pray honestly. Acknowledge the trough, name the valley. If God feels absent, then say so and say it out loud. And in doing that, you're in good company. Right the way through scripture, you see faithful men and women coming to God and crying out to him and and bringing their complaints, bringing their questions, bringing their doubts. That's exactly what you see Moses do here in verse 22. 
He turns to the Lord and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses takes his discouragement to God. He comes to God with questions. He's questioning God's goodness, first of all. Why, why have you done evil? And he questions God's purpose. Why did you send me? And then he questions God's actions. You haven't delivered your people. And here's the thing. God doesn't condemn Moses for his questions. I love that about the Bible. I love that God hasn't created Christians just to be obedient robots. Like he gives us commands and we just, he punches in a number and we just do what we're told. Like that isn't what we see in the Bible. You know what we see in the Bible is real Christians struggling to live in obedience to God, coming to God with questions, coming to God with doubts. And listen, those three things that that Moses comes to God with, we could critique those questions till the cows come home. But I don't think that's the point. I think what we see here is that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to struggle with obedience and come to God and ask. You know what, folks? I think the reason that maybe some of us often don't believe what God says in here is because we haven't thrown our questions at it. It's because we, when we come to difficult parts of God's word or when we come and there's a call to obedience and we feel that it's just too much, we either sweep it under the carpet or we ignore it altogether. Then we should bring our questions to God. Bring our complaints to God. Bring our doubts to God. We should pray and be honest and open with God when we're struggling. And the second thing is we should obey. We pray in the valley and we obey in the valley. Now, obedience to God is hard. Obedience to God is hard in the valley, especially when our emotions are saying, don't go. Don't walk in obedience. It just doesn't feel like a good decision. Like, don't. Don't go over there. It doesn't feel like, like God's going to give you good things. Like our emotions often tell us lies and often it's hard to walk in obedience when it doesn't feel like it's the good thing to do. Often the world says, don't go. The world says, if you're going to walk in obedience, you're going to be swimming against the tide. Think about yourself. Don't think about God. What's going to be best for you? Often the devil says, don't go. Don't walk in obedience. Your God, he's a liar. He's not going to lead you to freedom. In the valley we pray and in the valley we obey. Folks, it isn't blind obedience. Life in the valley is sustained by prayer and obedience, but both of these things are soaked in gospel truth. Our prayers and our call to obedience are soaked in gospel truths. See, chapter five is a struggle for Moses. It shows us the difficulty of the reality of walking in obedience and And just the situations around us being so difficult. Culture working against us, the world working against us, our own emotions working against us, the devil working against us. What we see in chapter 6 is God bringing to Moses the truths of the gospel to help him in his valley. In a stinking mess, whenever we find ourselves there, When we struggle to walk in obedience, what we need to hear more than anything else is the gospel. That's what we read in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we get five I will statements. And these are truths that we need to hear in the mess. And this is God saying to Moses, I will. I'm going to do these things. This is God saying it, okay? So get out of our minds, humans saying I will. Like how many times have we been asked to do something? 
husbands, this is you. We've been asked to do something and we say, yeah, I will. I'll do that. And it just doesn't happen. Like we do it all the time, don't we? That isn't God. When God says, I will, he will. In verse four of chapter six, God, God describes himself to Moses as a God of covenant, as a God of promise. When God promises because of his character, because his nature is true and good, he will not break what he has committed to. So when he says he will, he will. When we hear these five I wills in these next few verses, we can trust that he will. Now for Moses, as he hears these, we're just going to rattle through them in a sec. As Moses, as he hears them, that side of the cross. So before Jesus has come, he reads these commitments. He reads these promises from God as promises for the future. God will do these things. He's going to do these things in a physical way for Israel, but he's also going to do them in a spiritual way for God's people. Moses looks forward to the promise. This side of the cross, with our perspective, we look back to these promises and see them fulfilled for us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So whatever we hear promised to us now, folks, See it as being fulfilled for us in Christ. If you're a believer, we claim these as our own. These have been fulfilled for us in Jesus. So Jesus' perfect life, his death for sinner, his resurrection and his ascension against all of the promises that we're going to hear because of those things in light of the finished work of the cross. It's as if the father is saying, I will do these things. And Jesus stands next to him and says, yes, it's done. And he ticks it off as something complete for God's people. And so let's just go through them. We're just going to go through each one at a time. The first promise that comes, the first I will is found in verse six of chapter six. God says this to Moses. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will deliver you or I will liberate you. Here's the first promise from God to Moses. He will bring about a liberation. God doesn't just see his people in their affliction. He doesn't just see us in our slavery. No, he brings about our liberation. He draws us out of our slavery into his restful presence in eternity. And he draws Israel out physically from Egypt. And he draws God's people spiritually out of our slavery. And that work is completed at the cross. And yes, we still struggle with temptation. Yes, we still feel the the pressure of the world, the flesh, and our great enemy Satan against us. But our chains are broken, folks. They were broken at the cross. Listen to this from Galatians 1, verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to liberate us, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Israel were in slavery, physical bondage for 400 years before Moses came and led them out under the powerful hand of God. Christian, you've been freed from your slavery to sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. God comes to Moses in chapter six and says, I will liberate. The finished work of the cross, Jesus says, yes, it's done. Secondly, we see uh, the second promise at the end of uh, verse six there. I will liberate you and now I will redeem you, he says, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God will redeem us. Now, when we hear redemption, we think in economic terms and financial terms, like 
redemption for us is Tesco club car vouchers, that kind of thing, isn't it? Like that's the context that we think. Going to Tesco and redeeming our vouchers or the coupon on the side of the parcel box, whatever it is, like we get something good back for it. Like that's what we think of when we think of redemption and that is half of the picture. But when we read redemption in the Bible as an action from God towards us, it's much deeper than that. Like you'll know this if you're familiar with the story of Ruth. Redemption in the Bible is, is more about family than it is about finance. In Moses' culture, there was an obligation which was laid on uh, family members. So um, if I kind of lived in Moses' day and, and I died, uh, Elizabeth and the kids would be looked after by my brother because he was, he was obliged to do so. He had to redeem Elizabeth, redeem my kids to be part of his family. It was more about family than it was about finance. Redemption, folks, is family business. And so when we read that God redeems his people, it isn't that he sees us, takes pity on us, and just buys us out of our mess. This is about him working towards us, moving towards us as he would with his own family. It's less about dealing with us like we're a coupon. And it's more like dealing with us as we're his precious family. And here's the thing, folks. When you take your coupon to Tesco, Tesco and you exchange it for whatever, you get something good back in return. And God redeems us. Like, we're not a great prospect. God's law condemns us as the vilest of sins. That's what makes redemption so spectacular. Galatians 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our our redemption shows us to be more than just economic transfers for God. It shows us to be his family. In Exodus 6, God says to Moses, I will redeem. And Jesus, through the finished work of the cross, says, yes, it's done. Here's the third promise we see in verse 7. God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. This is adoption language. God is saying, I will adopt you. I'm going to make you my people. And it isn't just that we're his people. Back in chapter four, you might remember that God calls Israel, the Israelites, his firstborn son. God is saying that we are part of his family. If we're God's people, we've been adopted, we've been brought in. There's a wonderful shift in in our position and in our our identity when we're saved, when we cease to be slaves and we become sons and daughters of God. Listen to this from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And if you are saved, so you are. You're a child of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. I think, like, personally, adoption is one of... It's, it's my favourite of the doctrines of salvation that I just... I love to think about I love just the... I love to, to just to meditate on, on this... Just being part of God's family. Being his son. Being transferred from slaveship into sonship. Like, being part of his, his global family. Being a child of God, getting to call him my father. I love the doctrine of adoption. We should love it. I wonder, have you ever thought about what's at stake for God? Like, it's great to think about the blessings of being adopted, but imagine, like, I know it's hard because we're not, but 
think of it like this. Like, I love my mum and dad. But unfortunately, there's been times where I've stepped over the line and I've disgraced them and I've embarrassed them. And now think of how we do that every day to our Heavenly Father. Or at least that's how he should receive us. We step over the line. We walk in disobedience. We go our own way. Quite often I have conversations with myself. I don't know whether, I'm sure it's normal. Hopefully it's normal. Sometimes when I find myself in the valley, in the trough, and I find myself indulging in sin, like I will ask God, I'll say, are you sure? I love to hear the word of God come back and say, yep, you're my son. But have you seen what I've done this week? You're mine, Neil. You're my son. What if I mess up again? You're mine. You're my son. I don't think I belong here, God. I don't think I conform to the type of son that you should. Neil, you're mine. You're my son. And there is nothing that you can do. And there is nothing that you can't do that will separate you from my love. God says to Moses, I will adopt my people. I will bring them to be my people. And Jesus says in the finished work of the cross, yes, it's done. Here's the fourth promise that we see in verse eight. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I was saying that he's going to lead his people out of Egypt. He's going to bring them into a physical place. We read this last week. He's taking them to Canaan, the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And they will, they will enter it under Joshua, a physical place, a physical place of rest. But haven't we seen that that is just a picture, a shadow of the eternal rest that we are given through and promised through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what you read in 1 Peter 1 verse 4. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter's saying, if you're born again, you have a glorious future. And yes, you might feel like you're in a valley. Yes, you might feel like this is a trough. Yes, you might feel like the circumstances around you are a holy, stinking mess. And you might think it's just not worth carrying up. Peter says, keep going. You have a glorious future ahead of you. It's protected for you. It's undefiled. It's imperishable. It's unfading. Jesus is keeping it for you. He has a place for you, a place of perfect rest, perfect peace, a place free from sin and the brokenness of the world. It is the world that we all want. It's ahead of you. You have an eternal inheritance. That's what God is promising to Moses here and Jesus at the cross through his finished work says to his people, Yes, it's done. He will give it to us. Can I just say anyone can get in on this? 
God is speaking these promises to Moses. Now, when you get just scan down to verse 14, we're not going to read it all, but there's a bit of a break in the narrative here. So it's a conversation between God and Moses. Then you get to verse 14 and Moses kind of takes a sidestep and he starts giving out his family tree. It's a little bit, feels like it's out of place. Actually, quite often we skip over genealogies and we think this is the boring bit, but you know that I love these bits and they're always significant. What Moses is showing us here is that anyone can get in on the promises of God. See, as he goes through his family tree, what you see, and if we kind of know and understand uh, Moses' heritage a little bit, is that inheritance will be passed through the firstborn son. And if you kind of rewind the the clock back a bit to see Abraham and Abraham being really the first, uh, um, the, the one who stands as representing God's people. And then after Abraham, you have Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And you would think that it'd be the firstborn son who gets the inheritance, the firstborn son who, who uh, kind of takes hold of all the good things from, from their father, all of the promises. What's interesting is Moses doesn't come through that line at all. The firstborn was uh, Reuben. Moses isn't, isn't even second along. Moses comes from the tribe of Levi, the third along. And I think what Moses is showing us here and God is showing us through his word as he receives these promises is that, is that the liberation God promises, the redemption, the adoption, the eternal inheritance that is there for God's people. This isn't reserved just for the strong. It isn't reserved just for the elite. This isn't just for middle class people or English people. It isn't just for people who think they have it all together. Anyone can get in on this. Moses wasn't anyone special at all. He wasn't from the special tribe. And yet God gives him these glorious truths and glorious promises. Here is the last I will we get. The last promise we get at the start of chapter 7. Let me read verses 4 to 5 to us. God sends Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. And he says this, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of mercy. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I will lay my hand in verse four and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Folks, there are two ways to know God. One is to know him as our merciful savior, to lay hold of all the promises we've read in chapter six. And the other, the other way is to know him as our judge, the one who's gonna pour out his wrath on us. Look, just like he promises to do to Pharaoh. God will judge every sin. And if we're born again, the judgment for our sin, praise God, has already fallen on Jesus. And we will receive mercy. We will be drawn out of our slavery, just like the promise is there for Israel. But if we aren't born again, then just like Pharaoh, judgment is waiting for us. We need the mercy of God. Praise God, it is there for us. Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you are an adopted child of God, you've been liberated from your sin, you've been redeemed from the judgment of God, you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. And as you wait, you are a daily recipient of the mercy of God. It is there for you every day waiting for you. 
God says to Moses, I will show mercy on my people. And through the finished work of the cross, Jesus says over that promise, yes, it is done. Guys, obedience is hard. Feels like a battle sometimes, especially when life feels like a stinking mess. God's people pray and God's people obey. And we look to the promises of the gospel to sustain us. Every one of us will feel the call towards obedience this week. And that might be simply just staying away from a particular sin. It might be pursuing a certain relationship. It might be moving away from a certain relationship. It might be staying in a job, leaving a job. It might be speaking up about Jesus. It might be refusing to compromise your integrity at church. Or it might be coming alongside someone and challenge them because of sin you see in their life. And in our limited perspective, with the wisdom of the world whispering in our ears, maybe the prospect of obedience this week sounds like it might lead you into a stinking mess. Can I encourage you? Look what God has done. The word of God towards this afternoon is God is faithful. He has done so much. Everything that he said he will do, he has done. Follow him. In the valleys and in the troughs and all of those struggles that we will face this week as we seek to walk in obedience in the face of opposition, let us pray and let us obey. Let us look to the truth of the gospel as we do. In a minute, guys, we're going to share this meal together, but we're going to sing before we do. We're going to sing a song that helps us really apply that to our hearts and our lives. We're going to sing, look what God has done. And as we sing this, this is a, an encouragement for each other. Encourage us as we sing this. Don't just sing this for yourself. Sing this as a call to one another. Guys, look what God has done. As we want to go out of this place, we want to live lives that reflect the beauty of God. As we want to walk in obedience, knowing the challenges that will face us as soon as we step out of this door. Knowing that there will be resistance that we will have to walk through. Knowing that our obedience is opposed by the world, the flesh and the devil. We need to call each other to see the gospel. To remember the gospel. To see what God has done. To see what he has stored up waiting for us. We're going to sing this together. We're going to stand and sing it. And then when we're done, I'm going to break bread for us. And then we get to physically remember what God has done. We're going to take the bread, take the wine as a physical remembrance of all that Christ has done. Remembering the finished work of the cross that has enabled us to see yes and amen after all of those promises of God towards us. As we take this meal, it is a meal that fuels our faith. We need it. Anyone else need this meal this week? I need it. Because we have struggle this week to walk in the ways that God has called us to. Thanks be to God that he is a God of mercy ready to meet us, ready to supply us with all of the grace that we need.